From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 157 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl on a, I have to say, pretty bright sunny day here in Sacramento, California. Uh, joined by Dave and Ryan, as always. Is it sunny where you are? It's sunny where I'm at. It's not warm. So I'm, I'm, we're right in that time of year where I have extreme weather jealousy because <laughs> so many parts of the country are legitimately nice and all the grass outside is still brown and it's still cold. It's rainy here, but it's peak bloom. We hit peak bloom this week, so the cherry blossoms uh, are in full full bloom this week. Very nice. So, quite the quite the week. But no, it's, it's rainy today. A little bit of rain tomorrow, but that's okay. The plants need it. It was really gorgeous two, two days before that, and we are in peak bloom. Peak bloom. So, I never heard of that before. Peak bloom. Yeah, it's a th- it's a whole thing, and people track it. And the Park Service announces <laughs> like it's a whole prediction of when peak bloom will happen. And and hotel cool. rooms cost extra, and all of that. It's a it's a cultural. Thing. It's a thing. <laughs> Bell curve graph on the newspaper every day where we are in the blue. Oh yeah, we could. We, we should do a whole topic on this. And anyone who's interested, hit me up, and we'll talk it out. Also, don't feed yourself. They have one of those for leaf peeping in New England as well. It's true. That's a whole topic. That's a whole thing too. But gents, we're gonna have a little fun today. Other than being self-employed, what's the longest you've ever stayed in one job? Excellent question. I will say so. Uh, for me, uh, if I counted up six years, and I did that two times, but to the point, right, I've been self-employed now for more than twice that long. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been self-employed almost forever, but uh, actual real W-2 job, uh, the longest I've ever been in one was in grad school. I worked at the Inner University Consortium for Political and Social Research, ICPSR. And uh, so that was my, that was my, uh, wasn't really work study, but that was my, <laughs> my college. And, and was it, was it two years? Uh, well, no. So, so at three years, I would say I was, uh, I worked at a hardware store when I was in high school. So it was, it was more yes. like four years at uh, ICPSR. <laughs> my, mine would be the GFI logic now solar winds. Cause that was so Six years, three companies, <laughs> three company names. But from my perspective, I was hired once and I had continuous employment at the entities for a six year. The logo year on the paycheck changes on a regular basis. But yes, I mean, it, but that, that stuff changed. That stuff changed all the time, but from my perspective, it was a six-year... And you, and you know that this is a big conversation around the world these days, right? Like, oh, you need diversity, you need excitement, you need something new. Hey, in our world, I, I, I embody the free agent nation, right? I, I don't need to get a new job. Every time I get a new client, it's like having a whole new job. It's all kinds of diverse and interesting and fresh and new, and you just keep doing that forever. Yep. And so, so there was, there was a little bit of that. So that was my, that was it's my, funny. I story. had a conversation with a friend who was saying, gosh, how many jobs have you had? And I'm like, some of these things I described, they're not really jobs. I just did this thing. I made some money and I moved on. But like, I don't even consider that a job. It was like a, I had an idea. I did some stuff and you know, 
Uh, Right, exactly. There's this one entity, and I do a bunch of stuff within the entity, but I only consider the entity the job. Right. Like I, I do all kinds of crazy stuff now, but it, but there's only one job (laughs) to the way that it goes. Templates and checklists are just the start. Our community includes all of the best-selling books on managed services in all available formats, plus free training members-only programs, and the best business training available to managed service providers anywhere. Plus, we have weekly live members-only Zoom calls. The average member saves more than 200% of their membership cost each year. We are totally dedicated to your success. Just because you're in business for yourself doesn't mean you have to go it alone. Join us today at smallbizthoughts.org. All right, guys, thank you very much. Let's jump into our first topic today. We're going to start with a byproduct of our experience of working remotely and hybridly, et cetera, over the last couple of years. Uh, The article is focused on a recent piece of research released in the UK in which they discovered that a majority of professional workers would support government legislation that allows them legally to ignore their employer's emails off hours. Uh, A right to disconnect, if you will, is the the concept over there. Um, Different different working conditions, different legal frameworks, etc. in Europe and in the UK than we have over here in North America. But uh, guys, thought process from you. What are your ideas around the right to disconnect and ignore your employer's emails at all hours. Well, I'll start with the relax, focus, succeed perspective. Uh, I have, I personally have tried to disconnect even when I had a real job. Uh, and, and so I've always believed in that. And I also, I mean, I email people and say, why did you send me an email on the weekend? Or I sent you an email on the weekend. I didn't expect a response because you know, I just happened to send it then. That doesn't mean I need you to deal with it. Um, I think this is hugely important. And I think the pandemic has made it very clear to a lot of people that you have to draw these lines because your employer will not. So I, I'm a big fan. I'm not sure it needs to be a law, but it certainly it needs to be a good practice for good business owners. Well, I, so, so it's funny because I looked at this and I sort of said it's really sad that we actually may need a law, that there are so many bad employers that are uh, willing to take advantage of people, uh, that, 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 that there is a requirement for this. Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. I'm going to go like, by the way, unions, like, you know, like I'm going to observe that the reason this is happening is that individual employees are much, are much, it is much harder to push back on organizational structures at an individual level. And so there's a fallback then is, is the, the lowest common denominator is, is like, look, your legislator is actually your union at a very base level. If you are an employee. But I would also- I would remind employees that you don't assume something, don't have both sides of the conversation, right? Just because somebody sent you an email and it happens to be your boss doesn't mean that they need you to reply right away. And, and a lot of people sort of feel resistant to push back, but the reality is you've trained your employer to treat you that way, and so they do. 
So I, I'm not what I, I'm definitely not abdicating and saying like pushing away from individual responsibility for owning your own rights. And by the way, right now is a time when individual workers have the most. I just want usually I look at this and I'm, I'm looking at the system and I'm observing that for workers, particularly professionals, particularly those that are in knowledge worker, technical fields, these areas that, by the way, have not traditionally had unions, there is a binary state of the individual and then laws. And so this is a de facto bargaining power where the individual does not feel empowered to be able to take that. They may be pushing back an organization that isn't open to that. They're not com comfortable enough on their own. There's all of these reasons. And I just look at that and I say, like, I actually don't like the dynamic of the two extremes where the only way to get anything done are on one hand, it's an individual thing. And on the other extreme, it is regulation. I'll observe that that middle space is oftentimes managed by unions. And I'll just observe that, they, that in a system that has taken away power from that, you do end up in this situation. Please don't take this as me saying like everybody ought to union, everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just looking at the systems and saying, I want to observe the best behavior of that. This is a symptom of that middle bit not working very well. Well, and, and again, you go to the to the extremes and you recognize that there is a very logical, better way forward. Uh, continuous access, 24-7 emails, getting like nonstop micromanaged and harped on by your boss. That's miserable and nobody wants to work there. The government being required to step in and say, I will fine you or I will punish you otherwise in a regulatory framework that forbids you from doing that. You know what would be really logical? Be an employer who says, hey guys, you know what? I really enjoy having you as an employee of my organization and to ensure that that continues, I'm going to treat you with respect and I'm going to give you uh, confidence in your schedule. I will I will make sure you want to come work here every day, dot, dot, dot. I ain't never going to expect you to email me back at two o'clock in the morning. Now, as a person who has regularly sent 11 p.m. emails, that's a thing that I do. I absolutely do not expect anyone to reply to me just because I sent that. And, and sometimes I have to clarify that, but I can vouch for the fact this law already exists in Spain. This law is already in final negotiations in France. This law is coming in the UK because the research indicates only 11% of adults are opposed to this regulation. 11%. That's 89% agreement. Like, uh, let's work on the wording here. 89% of adults don't agree on the color of the sky today. This is obviously a problem. And to your point, Dave, I recently hosted a workshop where we were talking about culture as the opposite side of the coin of effectiveness and performance management. And the whole idea is uh, don't just acknowledge work-life balance. Don't just accept it, embrace it, promote it make that the calling card of your organization and all them humans will want to come work for you. And, and by the way, this is what you're saying is exactly what I advocate. Like if, if like I'm a believer that there's this space to be competitively 
advantageous around where you're going to own it because you can be a good employee uh, or employer. And by the way, the bar isn't high in many cases. Like it's not hard to be a reasonable right. a reasonable employer. But the the, uh, the other thing is almost every book you ever read, management book, will tell you that this is what you should do. You shouldn't email people or you shouldn't expect an answer uh, over the weekend or in the evenings and so forth and so on. Um, and that you should have work-life balance. And it's like that one part of the book where people sort of like skim, 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 skim. Let me get back to the, the business side of this. So Exactly. How, uh, what a culture schmulcher. How do I get paid more? <laughs> by the way, guys, the way you get paid more is by not having to continuously replace your workers and recruit and deal with all the and, and I've worked with, and you guys have worked with, a lot of companies. And the best-run companies, in fact, don't ask their employees to work 24-7 and be available 24-7. And, you know, it, it's a weird set of companies that do, uh, but but they abuse the hell out of their employees. Well, Jess, we are out of time on this one, so I'm going to move us on to a press release from the Transportation Security Administration where the TSA has enabled Arizona residents to use their mobile driver's license for verification at Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. Um, this is on the heels of um, Apple, of course, enabling their new uh, identification right within Apple Wallet. Uh, you know, this is the next step in them moving everything from your physical wallet into your digital wallet. As somebody who just used his smart trip card to ride Metro with my phone and not need the actual <laughs> physical one on the weekend. What's your reaction to this technology now rolling out? Well, it always makes me a little nervous as a frequent traveler. Like, I'm still going to print out my uh, boarding pass in case something goes wrong and this and that. But, you know, uh, I think we all use Clear. Um, clear now, they don't even ask you for your ID. If they, they literally, I want to see your boarding pass, which can be on your phone, and then they scan your eyes or your fingerprints, and then you get on the airplane. It's pretty impressive, and I think this is just the next the next logical step. And I will be a little nervous the first time I use an electronic thing on my phone to uh, get through security, but I think it's perfectly normal. I mean, why do we carry around some piece of plastic just because we used to? Well, and, and that is exactly the point, Carl. Uh, just because that's the way it's always been done doesn't mean we haven't already invented a better way. We just need to get people to the point where they are comfortable with this. My answer, Dave, is uh, congratulations, Arizona. Everybody else, get your shit together and make this happen tomorrow. It is, it is a radical step forward, and it's not like there's not a blueprint, right? If you have traveled to Japan, if you have traveled to South Korea, if you have traveled to many other Southeast Asian nations, They've been doing this with their currency and their credit cards, with their personal identification, with travel documents, literally for decades. And the fact that we don't have it here is a question of, I think that's being done on purpose, right? Like everybody always says, hey, we invented the internet and we invented the telephone and we invented the digital network. Why does America have the slowest network speed anywhere on the world? I'm like, it's not because it can't be fixed, guys. It's because somebody's making a lot of money not fixing it, and that's a deliberate roadmap management strategy. This stuff is there. I believe 100%. Carl, I totally, 
I, I will always be a battery nerd, so I've got a battery just in case my phone dies with all of my stuff, right? But I, I completely trust that digital wallet technologies, all of the ways that individual transactions are managed and encrypted on the device, and it's not shared with anybody. It's just the identifier that is shared. I, I buy the security. I buy the, the, the robustness of the system. I just believe somewhere in between here and there, there's somebody who gets paid for uh, thermographic printing of boarding passes at the airport who is really lobbying hard to make this not happen. So my, te my take is actually a little interesting because I know a lot of the privacy people are very worried about this kind of technology and how the data is used. And that's actually not my go-to concern. I'm likely, to, I'm the kind of person who's likely to use this, right? right. Like I would, I would likely, I'm going to load, I am likely going to load my driver's license onto it whenever it does it. I've already got my vaccination card on there. I'm a heavy user of Apple Pay. But I actually will point to my recent travel experience down in Brazil to say like, okay, but I understand the mitigation. So when I traveled to Brazil, I was very much warned that my device would be a target. I've got a nice iPhone 13 Pro. I just recently bought in the flash. Apparently they always are looking for the flashy iPhones to steal. That's the, 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 the bit. And there is the two reasons that they're stolen. The first stolen. The first of course is the device itself has value. But the other reason that it is being that those devices are being stolen is access to your financial records and to your financial data and the ability to access everything that you have based on having that. So, for example, when I traveled, I did, in fact, have a burner phone that I was using around town so that I did not think about it. And what I learned about myself was how freeing it really was to have very little with me. I had a paper, paper copy of my passport, a phone I did not care about, a single credit card and several backups back in, in you know, secure where I was staying, uh, and a little bit of cash. And that made me feel very comfortable knowing that if something happened, I did not care, right? All, none of this, the, any of the, if they stole all the things that I had, I wasn't worried about it. It's that triangulation space that I'm thinking about for this, that I want to make sure that I'm in a place where the data, if the device is stolen, if the access is stolen, I am still able to recover. It's the same security conversation we have on every bit of data on every little bit. And I, my concern is, is that not enough people will think that through say I have just my phone and then I'm, that's everything I need and I'm good and not think through the, you know, there may be scenarios where you're going to want to be covered. Carl's statement of like, well, I print my boarding pass in case something goes wrong. I use electronic boarding passes, but I still have ways of getting solutions solved if I right. need them. And it's that space that I want to make sure that we're very deliberate about thinking about. Well, and there's actually uh, a future product here, right? The, to, to, to train people on how do you do this the right way? How do you show up with just the right stuff? Because, you know, when I'm hearing your, your discussion of Brazil, I lost my phone when I was in Mexico, right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, kind of the same situation as it turns out. Because I, you know, I don't stress over it. I don't really use the phone for making phone calls. So it's only the data that mattered. And I go online and click a button and now nobody can get to the data. And, you know, so it was very low stress for me. But I know that's not true for everybody. <laughs> but, but there's also this like, okay, and I have my physical passport. So I know I can get back home, right? And even though nobody's ever asked me for my global entry card, 
I carry it with me because what the hell, right? <laughs> so. Well, I'll, I'll just so first, first I, so I had set up a burner phone when I was down in, in Brazil. I actually am going to maintain a second burner phone of the pre, like whatever previous gen or older, like just some disposable one. I actually ongoing and planning on maintaining it and I will throw it in my bag when I travel. That's going because that way it will give me the option of deciding how I want to use, you visit the space, what I'm comfortable with. And in any scenario, I'll be okay if something goes wrong. Either the like my primary phone is stolen, or I'm just out with my secondary one and I don't care. Well, you're also <laughs> and so an Apple user, so much of what you need is synced between your iPad and your phone already. Right. Correct. You know, Correct. Like at, so, the biggest hassle for me is that while I was gone, I took delivery of a new computer. So I came back. I'm like, oh, now I'm excited to set up this new computer. Well. You have to set up all that crap again with all that two-factor authentication, which I'm now just rebuilding because I lost my phone and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> well, and, and we have often said, uh, you know, the worst thing that could ever happen to modern society is just turn off the electricity. And we're back in the 1800s surrounded by a bunch of people who don't know how to light a fire, right? Like we're, we're radically unqualified to live without these technology crutches that we've become very accustomed to. If you turn off the interweb and that's the only way of validating who you are and your ability to get on an airplane, go to a store, buy food, that's going to be a massive problem. So obviously it's not just my device and, you know, what was it this week? Apple was offline for a big chunk of hours. iTunes was down. The App Store was down, and 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 it it only pissed me off because I couldn't listen to music for that window of time <laughs> because I don't download that stuff onto my local device. That was a problem, right? But that was a trivial problem compared to, oh no, I think you think you're going to get back in the country, but you can't until Apple's servers come back online. That's a heavier. Just question. a side note, you know that battery that I used to jump my car if I need to. Add a little steel wall and you can create fire. So I'm just saying. From topic, Don't tell the battery guy you can create fire with it. <laughs> yeah, or I could just like punch a hole in the battery and then the lithium will ignite. And anyway, so the uh, third topic we're going to talk about, uh, we're posting up uh, one of these reports that comes out every 20 minutes on the, the growth rate of managed services and what we'd expect that market to be. And we're going to post up the summary. This is a 160-page report, and but it talks about the market growing for managed services to about $730 billion by 2030, and about a compound rate of about 11, I mean, a 12, 13% uh, annual compound annual growth rate uh, during that period. The thing I thought was interesting is, and I've only read the summary, not the 160 pages is that they seem to be using managed services to mean outsourced IT. And I think outsourced IT is a much broader market than what we think of inside the channel when we think about managed services. So I'll just point that out. All right. 
So I want to put my analyst hat on for a second and, and inform listeners that don't watch this space. Let me let me let me give two data points for people that don't watch, watch this space. First off, there is a massive market in selling reports, and if you're not aware of this, you're not somebody who spends their time looking at data researcher research like I do to do my other podcast. Uh, there's all of these. So when Carl McQuip that they went every 20 minutes, he's only half jesting. I have to sort through every single day the press releases around these kinds of reports based on markets or based on companies or based on there's a whole ecosystem of people selling this stuff if you want one they're all out there they'll charge you a very large pile of money to give you access to this if you are in the business of investing this may is a different model for those of us that are consuming now the second bit is is managed services as a term does spread much larger than our typical smb IT consultant space does. There is managed services delivered to the U.S. government, to other, other governments around the world, to massive corporations. That is, you, we could have a philosophical argument about whether or not it is IT outsourcing, or but, but oftentimes it is a similar definition of a contract engagement where a set of services are delivered on a monthly recurring basis and thus, it qualifies by kind of an academic version of managed services. So the thing to think about on something like this is that when we talk about this market, it is all of that oftentimes is what they're looking at. Now, what I wanted to latch on to as a, a point of observation, I'll throw it to Ryan, is, is like, look, 13.4% compound annual growth rate, not bad, not bad. But not amazing either. <laughs> not a incredible gangbusters, incredible growth, massive marketplace that oftentimes we talk about for technology investments or if, if it's the emerging tech space or big tech growth or any of those. This would not be a, wow, this is an amazing gangbuster. No, no headline here. Yeah, yeah. no, no. The headline is something that's only apparent if you live inside of this world, right? I, I will take it, and Dave, I agree with your, your first basic analysis. I am radically uninterested in what people believe to be the overall global total addressable market of any particular category. 42 gajillion this or that, yeah. Okay, can I get all of that as an individual? I can't, so stop telling me about it, right? Number one, is it big enough Good enough. Stop arguing about the number. Number two, how is it growing? And number three, how far penetrated into the ultimate addressable market are we? In other words, are we approaching maturity and a static marketplace? This is where I think the headline is in this particular data. 13.4% growth year over year indicates a reasonably mature, not totally, not, it, it's not a commoditized marketplace. We're not over the hump in the bell curve of adoption yet, right? That it, it, it's growth, but it's not radical growth. And yet the best research I can find out there anywhere, if I look at the SMB category, if I'm loose with that, like go up to 200 million in annual recurring, in annual total revenue, the total penetration into the marketplace is something like 23% for, as Dave describes academically, contract recurring outsourced services that are paid on an agreed uh, fee. That 
is the type of market penetration that should, A, prove the business case and make it real for people, and B, unlock the radical post-tornado growth phase that a marketplace will yield once something is proven. We're not seeing that. I have to ask why. If we are lightly penetrated and growing slowly, that's not a question of the value proposition of the service because clearly hundreds of millions of entities look at this globally and go, yeah, you're right. I buy your value proposition. Outsourcing this to you is better economically, technologically, performance-wise for me than staffing this stuff internally. But it's not growing aggressively. And to me, that is the definition of an internal implementation and execution problem. Those of us in the industry are not experiencing that growth because we are not capable of causing that growth as a collective, right? We are growing as fast as we know. And throw in that people, businesses do businesses with other businesses that are roughly their size. So IBM is not going to buy Ryan Morris's managed services package. Never. And if they did, it would be awesome. <laughs> no, it would be awesome. <laughs> it would be awesome for the first three days until. But, but so what happens is you have lots and lots of tiny little businesses who will only hire tiny little IT consultants who do not do a very good job of marketing, uh, do not do not understand their own value proposition and can't spell it out to their clients and so forth and so on. So then there's a lot of issues. Plus, well, this has been going on long enough that businesses have come into business, run their business for 20 years, not automating anything, and then gone out of business or retired or, or were bought up by their competition or whatever. And no matter how much you and I love technology, they never saw the value in spending money to have somebody automate their stuff. And so even today, there are businesses that only have handwritten receipts. There's nothing is automated. They count the pennies in the cash drawer at the end of the day, and they are happy to operate that way. Yep. See, that goes back to the point, right? If the if the market is there, right, you know, this, this global number that the research is showing, that's huge, that's lucrative. If the growth rate is not commensurate with the penetration level into the marketplace, we're only growing as fast as we know how to grow. I believe that, and you guys can, you know, vouch for how many times I've said this over the years, the technology model and the business model of managed services is more than well established. We have proven the point that it works. Now we need to stop arguing about whether or not it's a good idea and start moving into how do you run this business like a business for significant growth? And that means that those of us who were born and raised in the technology conversation, we need to stop arguing about technology and we need to start talking about things like, I don't know, marketing and selling and HR for staff and automation on internal procedures. We just need to run the business like a business. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna end this by saying for those of you, we did a, when we were warming up, I was ranting about this whole space. There's something here, people. Like if you're not doing that, wow, you can differentiate 
really fast. And I just want to give Ryan the Pickle Finger of Fate Award for not mentioning digital transformation in that last topic. I appreciate it. <laughs> well done. Well done. Kudos to you, sir. And on that happy note, we will conclude episode 157 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.